NG Poland, and JS Poland conferences are fast approaching. In less than two months, we will meet in Warsaw, on one of the biggest stages, and online. There are three exciting days ahead, filled with knowledge, fun and new acquaintances. Note the dates. October 24th, Workshops. October 25th, NG Poland. October 26th, JS Poland. Book your ticket, at the best price today. Round 1, runs through the last of August. See you at the conferences. What's up everyone, this is Dariusz Kolbarczyk, co-founder of MG Poland, JS Poland, AngularMaster.dev and WorkshopFest.dev. Welcome back to Angular Master Podcast. Today we've got a special guest from Toronto, Canada, principal UI architect at Cisco, trainer, and your ex team member, Google developer expert, Angular Toronto organizer, ladies and gentlemen, Alex Okruszko. Hi, Alex. How are you today? Very good. How are you? Yeah, thank you. Okay, so uh, please introduce yourself and tell us uh, what you do. Um, so I'm currently uh, working as a principal UI architect uh, at Cisco. I'm working part of the Cisco CX group, which is a customer experience. Um, it's a quite large part of uh, Cisco now. Um, and... Um, <clears throat> I'm also part of the uh, NGRX core team. Um, I organize Angular Toronto, and I'm also Angular uh, Google Developer Expert GDE. Awesome. The question is, uh, what exactly does a principal UI architect do at Cisco? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, sometimes I don't know myself, but, <laughs> uh, but generally, um, I'm I'm trying to help with the architecture and dev processes uh, for two our major front ends, um, trying to help with designs, uh, trying to guide um, and establish some of the best practices. Now let's go back a few years. Uh, when did you start your adventure in programming? Yeah, I started uh, some time ago, um, I think over 10, 11 years now. Uh, in, in fact, um, there's a trend now on Twitter, uh, find your first PR, which was exciting. <laughs> and I, I used that app as well just to find my first public PR. Uh, and it was uh, pretty much around 10 years ago into uh, some Django, Django um, forms library uh, where I tried to contribute. So that just reminded me, uh, that you know have been been around for some time um, for some time definitely over ten years uh, started um, I started actually a lot in, in testing so that was test automation was my first focus before I uh, moved ten um, percent in, in more of like development uh, but I think the quality part uh, that I care you know still is with me to this day. In fact, I'm a big proponent on, on some of the testing things and I've done a few talks about the testing as well. A, a lot of my career I spend um, 
at Google. Uh, I think almost eight years I was there um, in a few different parts. Uh, the latest was the Google um, Google's uh, Firebase project. Um, and um, now I've been at Cisco for now oh, a year and a half been at Cisco here. So it's, it's been an interesting journey so far and definitely learning a lot and still learning a lot. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's where that's my adventure in programming. Amazing. Uh, so what can we expect this year? NG Poland conference during your presentation. Yeah. For this year, um, I prepared something interesting. Um, I typically talk about NGRX, right? Being part of the NGRX team. Or I talk about, I have a few talks about testing. I had other talks as well about TypeScript things. Um, but this one is interesting. And this is where, you know, I've been um, at, at Cisco now for a year and a half leading a lot of these things. Uh, and I think this helped me um, identify this almost a path Uh, how to make sure that the front-end teams are uh, successful in the enterprise environment. And, um, you know, there are a number of things need to be get right, right? We need to get right. We need to get right people. We need to get right tools and the processes. And this was uh, focused a lot on the processes and tools part. Um, this, this talk will be about that. Let's define what you mean by enterprise application here. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely, uh, you know, enterprise front end, enterprise application. What I mean is um, you can get along without, without many of those things that I'm going to talk about in a smaller team, in a, in a maybe small startup, or maybe you have a small team uh, working together closely. However, uh, as you're, If your app scales to, you know, tens and or hundreds of developers working on the same thing, uh, you definitely need different processes. And the enterprise application or enterprise front end, what I mean is um, large importance for the company. And again, a lot of people working together. So how do you make sure that in a large team, you can continue to deliver uh, fast performant application. That's, that's basically uh, what the enterprise uh, application, like I, what I mean by enterprise application. Uh, and, and for example, when I joined Cisco, um, you know, I identified some of the steps that we need to make the team successful, right? Uh, some steps that, We needed to take, but also steps, some steps that I think are still useful for pretty much any front-end application. And this is the steps that uh, we can talk about today. And this is the steps that we'll be also covering uh, during my talk at NG Poland. Amazing. So how many steps? Yeah, there's, uh, there's nine steps. Uh, and I, again, nine steps might be too much, but I think... Uh, I couldn't really group them uh, together just because, you know, those are already more like detailed steps uh, and approaches uh, to things uh, which I felt were necessary. Um, and yeah, this is, we have like nine steps uh, and it starts all with the objective, right? The objective, I think important because that sets the focus of what you're trying to achieve. And 
for me, what I was trying to achieve and the objective that, that we're setting is uh, that we want to deliver our products frequently, right? Like some daily releases or from PR to be submitted uh, to it being in production with the, as minimal time as, as possible, maybe something like two days or something like that. So deliver products frequently uh, via simplified and well-understood and predictable release and development processes with high quality. So with a good test coverage, you know, minimal manual tests needed uh, for it to be scalable and maintainable code, right? That is well-designed and well-reviewed, right? So that's basically the objective. I know it's large objective. It covers pretty much everything from the frequency to how we maintain code, how we review it, uh, how things are designed, which parts we're paying attention to, are we paying attention to quality or not, like all those things. Uh, the objective unites all of this, combines all of this, uh, and, and sets, uh, sets the scene for, for these steps uh, that we're going to talk about. And, and these steps, again, there's nine steps. Um, the first one that I identified was team communication. Second one was uh, moving the code base to the monorepo, and we can discuss why it's important. Uh, third one is introduction of feature flags. Number four is uh, trunk-based development. Number five is PRs and setting expectations around them, how we submit PRs. Six is automatic help. Uh, seven would be quality and, and testing. Uh, number eight is how we plan new features. And uh, number nine, step number nine is like daily releases. Um, and these steps are in such an order. Um, for me, I put them in such an order because I feel this is the order of how they should be executed and importance. Some things could be done in parallel, um, but most things I think they goes from most important steps to to the one that you eventually hopefully getting to, which is your daily uh, releases. Um, so that's basically the objective and, and some of the steps that we're trying to get through to, to be successful front-end application. Let's start with team communication. Team communication, and this could be surprising to some, like, well, why do you have even this step, right? Uh, and it's uh, what I discovered is it's not unusual for a large team of front-end developers not even to have a you know, single space where they're talking about problems and things like that, um, especially if you're getting like 50 or 100 or more than 100 front-end engineers even working on the same application, um, things frequently get into some silos, right? There's a team communication there, the other team communicating there. But there's no uh, single channel for entire front-end team to communicate and, and ask questions um, and for me, I feel this is important. That what brings teams together, that what breaks, uh, breaks down those silos, uh, that what helps information to get from one team to another. Um, and, and also, the, I think it also brings team together closer, um, like almost like a camaraderie, right, within, within teams to do this together. So that's, you know, I think having team communication is important. 
but that you know depending on the size of the team uh that large channel for example could get quite busy uh so i also typically recommend to have a second channel uh with the same group of people but just for some of the important updates so for example hey i've been on vacation for a week i come back i want to see what exactly happening this is no way I can read through all the chat in the main one, but I do want to capture capture the important items that I might have missed in that one, right? Or even then, it's not even the vacation, but if somebody is um, less involved in the communication, but they do not want to miss the important updates, still having that uh, that one, and and having that, it's also important because uh, any changes that you want to do within the team. Uh, within the front end, uh, you want everybody to be aware of them. So you want to inform people or even collect the feedback, right? So you do need to have a way uh, to talk about it. So having this team communication, you cannot do any changes unless, you know, people are aware. <laughs> I mean, you probably can, but you probably won't succeed uh, in that. So that's why team communication is uh, is also very important, right? So that was number one. Okay, number two, move to monorepo. Yeah, monorepo is, I think, again, is very critical. Um, in in my example, for uh, I have two front ends, and I also have a common components team, for example. So it it, it was easily done, you know, easy to do this. Uh, one repo for one team, one repo for the other team, third repo for the other team, but then. Uh, there's uh, a lot less uh, sharing, but there's a lot common knowledge. And also uh, it's harder to um, build the app with the reusable parts because even though, you know, for example, you have two applications, there's still are pieces that could be reused. So eventually what things happen, you know, things get copy pasted sometimes or, uh, you know, one, for example, for the common library, uh, common components, for example, library, uh, somebody files a bug that, oh, this is, doesn't work as it is. Oh, I actually fixed it already. You just need to get the new version of it. You know, it becomes a lot harder. Also, um, w- moving to monorepo is, um, is important to distinguish from, hey, this is like a monolith now. It's now, so it's the way you store code and the way you deploy code, it's not the same thing. Right, so you can store everything in the monorepo, uh, and then deploy your one app separately, the other app separately. And when you deploy it, right, it builds it builds from the pieces that's needed. Uh, it almost takes those uh, pieces from the monorepo, combines them together, and builds them. Right, so um, monorepo and monolith is not the same thing. Uh, I know there's a micro micro trends, microservices, micro frontends. But monorepo is, is the way you store code, and that is uh, perfect when it comes together. In fact, this is what I learned uh, from Google, where Google has basically a single monorepo for all of its products in all languages, backend, frontends, one single giant monorepo. Uh, and it's so freeing as well, right? You can check the code from other parts. You can reuse sometimes the code from the other parts as well. Now, obviously, there is some controls to make sure some of that is, uh, is, not, um, is not getting out of hand. But generally, you know, moving to monorepo would also support easier refactoring. 
think of a component that's used in both applications. Say you want to change the APIs of it, right? If you have to do it through the library, you need to version it. You need to make sure other ones are adopting and they might not be adopted easily because, you know, but now you can just change. If you have all your consumers in the same place, you can easily change your component and then the places where it's used. So again, things like that, uh, easier, some refactoring. Also, the other benefit is um, standardizing on the tooling for the code management. For example, like the linters and formatters or, you know, those service generation from, from DTOs or D, all those things become simpler because you can standardize on tooling. And moreover, you can dedicate a few, uh, a few team members for, for basically maintaining this tooling across for all the front end as well. Um, that takes the burden off each team to try to upgrade, say, you're upgrading Angular to next version, right? You can just do it across uh, all of your apps. Um, so again, and or ESLint rules, right? You want to make sure that they're consistent across or somebody else is actually improving your linting. So that becomes easier. Um, also less releases because, for example, now common parts don't need to be released. They're just built uh, at the time when the apps are built. Um, it also speeds up builds and tests, um, especially, for example, we opted into using NX, and it has a concept of uh, splitting things into the small libs, right? So now uh, your, your builds and tests are faster because uh, when you change things, this is a dependency graph that can figure out what's actually affected. So it can only rebuild and retest only those, those parts. And uh, also it... Surprisingly, it makes some of the dependencies and boundaries even clearer than your uh, in two separate apps or three separate apps. Um, because again, there are some controls in the monorepo. We can specify what exactly is it a UI piece, is it a feature piece, is it a utility, uh, things like that. And again, dependency graph can uh, help you visualize all of that stuff. So moving to the monorepo, I think again, is a big step. Uh, that uh, enterprise finance should try to achieve. Next step is uh, future flux. What does it mean? Yeah, future flux is uh, a very critical part of the application. Um, they, future flux is basically your almost like ifs, if, if else is uh, <laughs> in your code. There are branches of code, right, that it can go one way or other way. Um, but they are so powerful because they can get you a little bit closer to the actual continuous delivery of the code. So we have CICD, right? And continuous delivery means you can continue to deliver your things to production frequently. Uh, and why is it helpful? Well, because if there's a new, flat, a new feature you're working on, you can just disable it until you work on that. And then, you can enable it with the feature flag only once uh, you're getting ready, f- you know, for this, for it to be released. Um, so feature flags, and there are different types of feature flags. There's runtime feature flags. There are build time feature flags. Uh, we opted into the runtimes uh, and that allows you to decouple your deployment, which is actually shipping the code to production from the feature release 
meaning you are actually runtime enabling this feature and now code behaves differently. Uh, so it's very freeing and powerful thing. And in fact, it's almost a prerequisite for the next step, which is a trunk-based development. Uh, but um, yeah, so we chose uh, one of the vendors. We went with a split IO, but there's a, a bunch of others like Lunch Darkly comes to mind and there are maybe a few others. Um, yeah, so again, why is it important? You couple the rollouts and feature enablement. Uh, they, it also allows to unblock teams for each other. Uh, in, especially in the large front end, if you don't have feature flags, uh, say team A, B, and C are ready with their features for this particular deployment. And then uh, team no, D is like behind. It's like, cannot finish. Now you are holding on the entire deployment uh, because one of the teams not ready. With feature flags, hey, you're not ready. That means your feature won't be turned on yet. So you, you go and deploy those things. And again, the, the prerequisite for trunk-based is a, a, a next important, powerful thing. You're listening, Angular Master Podcast. Listen, code, repeat. Everything you need to know to become an Angular super developer. Let's move to the next step, trunk-based development. Yeah, because feature flags enable you the trunk-based. Uh, and what I mean by uh, trunk-based is you basically have a single branch in your code. Well, let's say there's a single branch we can call the main branch. Uh, and why is it important to have trunk-based development? Why uh, having many, many different branches that have their features worked on is not quite a good idea. And the reason is because of the merges, things become complicated. And we try to make things as simple as possible. And um, one thing here I'd like to distinguish is um, some, like complexity and complex. So complexity and complex are not the same thing. Things could have, a, you could have a complex system but with a simple basic set of rules where complexity is uh, where things get a little bit out of hand and just makes things like complicated, so it's complicated and complex. So those are two different uh, things that I like to distinguish. Uh, so trunk-based development allows to have a complex system, but allows with the simple rules. So you have a main trunk. This is where all your development goes into. That means you check out your code, you create, you, you have your PR, ideally as small as possible, and then you merge it back into the main. And everybody on the team does the same thing. So that's how you continue your code. When you have a release, well, you just tack it and push it out into production, right? Uh, without feature flags, that won't be possible, of course. So you're basically building on your feature flags into your trunk-based development because that allows you to hide things that are not ready for production yet. Uh, or if you're changing a behavior, right, it's still... It's you still vacated in the main code that will be shipped to production, just won't be enabled until you uh, turn on the feature flag. So that's why you know trunk-based development is again very powerful. Uh, your team, especially, it's lost, e easier to coordinate. There's no more questions: which branch should I merge into? Uh, or oh, this was fixed, with this was patched, was that merged? You know, all of those things become a lot simpler and more predictable. 
So, uh, and also less conflicts. Uh, the other problem is when you're trying to merge uh, two branches that have been in development for some time is, is conflicts. And, and, and those conflicts is uh, where a lot of issues are coming from. That's where, you know, a lot of things, they break there. Very subtle, but then, you know, you get that in production. Number four. So number five. Number four. Number five. Uh, PR settings expectation. Um, yeah, this, this one was interesting. Um, and I think, again, very important step. Uh, each step is very important, of course. Uh, but this one's particularly important. Um, one thing that we learn is that um, to be part of a successful team, there needs to be a shared understanding of excellence. Uh, and that also goes to, you know, code requirements and, and some of the best practice guidance. Uh, for example, to bring a common expectation for PRs, um, both author of a PR and reviewer need to be needing to know what's expected of them. And for that, uh, we are following a few things. We, we follow the, uh, the TypeScript style guide, right? Uh, we follow the uh, ts.dev slash style style guide. That was basically some of the style guides that were open sourced from Google about TypeScript. We follow Angular style guide. We follow internal testing style guide. Style guide. Uh, and we follow also other, uh, some of the best practices. Um, why is it important for author and, and reviewer to have this expectation? If you don't have those expectations, it's very hard to understand what, is, what exactly is expected of me, right? So to have, to remove that ambiguity, right? You do you need to identify what exactly is, is needed, but for that, you also need to document what are the set of rules that you expect as well. So if somebody is not writing uh, unit tests, for example, right, for the code, um, how do you know? Are you expected or not expected if it's not documented, right? So if you say, hey, in every PR, we expect that the bug, every bug fix or any new feature that touches the TypeScript code needs to come with the unit tests in the same PR, right? So now you remove that ambiguity. And more, you have, you're setting the expectation for both for the author and for reviewer. Reviewer will check it. Hey, um, where's your unit test, right? There was a bug fix. Hey, where's your unit test? Or, you know, so you're basically setting this uh, expectations. Um, you're also improving the quality and the long-term maintainability of the code with some of those best practices. Uh, also, this, this allows to standardize some of the patterns across your code base because you have those expectations outlined. Uh, and the other one is also interesting, uh, sharing knowledge, right? So that's how you can share knowledge uh, between the team by having those written expectations to that. So that's why setting expectations for PRs, I think, is very important. In fact, there is also... Um, I highly recommend to read... Uh, there's... A, Google also published um, in open source uh, the expectations for author and for reviewer regarding to PRs. So it's it's out there. Uh, I, I might uh, share it somewhere again, <laughs> maybe on Twitter. Uh, I highly recommend to read it and and maybe even standardize within your teams. So so 
such important. It really outlines uh, what is expected of who and how to do the proper code reviews. Automatic help. Yeah. Uh, what I mean by automatic help uh, is, uh, is also like code reviews are, are nice and, and awesome, but even if somebody doesn't follow some of them, do you want to argue about them? Do you want to highlight that, hey, you need a space here or you need put a comma here and start it from you? No, right? You want to catch things as much as possible in an automatic way. So this is where auto formatting helps. This is where linting helps. This is where TypeScript compiler helps. And the stricter it gets, the more it catches, right? Again, TypeScript is our friend. We use it for a reason. Uh, let TypeScript help you catch things before production issues happen uh, because, you know, the stricter the TypeScript you set, um, the more things you can catch at compile time instead of runtime. So also um, use your PR CI pipeline. Uh, your builds, your tests, your code coverage numbers should also be all running and helping you automatically catch any of your issues beforehand. That also reduces the burden on the reviewer to catch things. And again, if we can have tools for this, tools are better catching things than any people, <laughs> right? So let, um, let reviews, code reviewers uh, to review more like some of the business logic or should it be the here or should it be there versus things that could be automated. Um, leave, leave it to linting, uh, ESLint or any other ones. Um, leave it to the automatic tooling. So, um, so that's one. And um, secondly, also when we have like, for example, consistent auto formatting, uh, when we navigate the code base, um, our eyes would be less distracted by different formats, uh, but they'll be it'll be easier to focus on the uh, actual flow of the code and the logic than you know some of the bracket that starts from another line can throw you off altogether. So again, it also helps with this um, linting. Again, static code analysis can help us catch potential bugs or error-prone code sooner and, uh, and also helps enforce some of the patterns, right? Yeah, and again, strict TypeScript is your friend. Uh, and in fact, having stricter TypeScript also allows uh, you to continue to upgrade your versions of TypeScript and Angular easier. Uh, if, you, if it's looser, then, you know, new things... Uh, might make it a lot harder. So yeah, automatic help, use that as much as possible. Step seven, let's talk about quality and testing. Yeah, quality and testing. Uh, historically, I'd say, again, in some companies, what is a developer's role? Developer's role is to implement some of the code. Right, and well, you take something off a backlog and you throw it into your sprint, you're done with this, you throw it out, you don't know what happens to this after, uh, when it'll be deployed, you don't care about that, or uh, if the quality, well, QA team will find it, the file bug will fix it later. 
Uh, that's one of the approaches. But I feel like you're having less of a control and less pride over your work if it's in this fashion. Uh, what I try to promote is developer ownership of the code. And, and that starts with owning the quality for this thing as well. Um, I was always saying, and I keep saying it, it's not your QA team's responsibility uh, to be uh, to, to own the quality of, of the code. I mean, how can somebody else be responsible for the quality of the code that you write? <laughs> it doesn't make sense, right? So instead of QA team being responsible for that quality, it should be developer's responsibility to ensure that the, the code itself uh, is at the highest quality standard. You know, what it does, uh, what your code uh, supposed to do that it actually does it. So you need to validate all of that stuff. And that starts to expand developer ownership from just implementation part to the quality side of things, right? Um, that's the next logical step. And, and there again, there are different types of tests, right? There's unit tests, integration tests, visual tests, acceptance tests, many other tests. Um, what we're trying to standardize on, oh, we actually standardize it, like unit tests and integration tests is 100% uh, developer's responsibility. Unit tests, in fact, have to come with every PR. Integration tests, you know, once your feature is getting ready to be released or, you know, you, you, it's, it's, it's a later parts, then you write some of the integration tests to ensure that it integrates with your backends properly. So, um, all of those things uh, enhance the long-term maintainability of the code. Uh, they, these tests also provide confidence in, in new features and refactorings if you do. Uh, your tests also document uh, how your code works, right? So if somebody else needs to look, tests would provide exactly how it works. And then, you know, the proof that whatever is being added actually works as expected. So <laughs> that's, that's the other a good aspect of why we uh, why we have the quality and testing. That's, I think, again, very very important uh, step. Step number eight: new feature planning. Yeah, we're getting closer to uh, to completing the steps. Step number eight. Um, so we just talked about that. You know, implementation is what developers historically are responsible for. I just described how we can cover it on the testing side as well. So that's after implementation. Now let's take a look at things before implementation. And that's, again, it saves a lot of time. So you can, why do we need planning? I think that having design docs for the feature that you want to implement uh, will help tremendously in, again, in, in, multiple, in multiple ways. Uh, first of all, it allows you to collect the actual requirements for your feature and have an understanding of the feature before you start even the implementation of it, which saves times identifying some of the risks early. Um, do you have the APIs for it? Um, maybe you don't have the APIs, but do you have a contract? Maybe you have some you know, YAML files already that would be the contract for it with your backend team. Uh, it also allows structuring and organizing your thoughts together, right? If, if you're talking about UI, 
Uh, design doc will allow you to, first of all, identify the objective, highlight a little bit of a background, but then when you start the design itself, uh, you might want to see, hey, you have a UI mock, how would you break it up in, the, in your component tree? Right, that allows you to visualize and think about it. That's awesome. So you have component tree. What next? Your state flows. Where's your state? How it be flowing between components? Is it shared outside? Is it used somewhere else? All those things allow you to plan things a little bit earlier without spending time implementing this and then re-implementing this and then re-implementing this and then re-implementing this again, just because and then realizing, oh my god. Where is this data coming from? I have it in my mock, but I don't have an API response for this. So this all this allows you to actually plan a little bit ahead. Uh, one thing is like don't stress too too much about it as well. It doesn't have to be 100% perfect, right? It doesn't have to be 100% accurate, but it, it would allow you to organize all of these things together. Now, once you have your uh, design doc, uh, then you can collect uh, feedback from your team sooner. For example, hey, I've done this uh, such and such way and somebody's like, oh, I remember I was thinking to do it this way as well, but I ran into this and this issue, so maybe you want to try it a, a bit differently like this. That's great. You got the feedback before you actually implemented the thing and now you have a different way of implementing. Uh, so that's, again, another great benefit of why we do need uh, to have some future planning. Another one is also general knowledge sharing uh, and awareness of the team, like what are you working on? Uh, maybe when somebody else would be implementing something, some other feature, and they would remember that, oh, I remember this design review that we all looked at, and it was implemented in such and such way. Uh, I might want to do this as well. So basically some of the general knowledge sharing. And, and final thing is on why of, when you do this, these are great artifacts of your work, which... Uh, which almost, you know, uh, highlight what, what you worked on, uh, what type of problem you worked on, how complex the problem was and how simply a solution was. So they're actually grew great for, uh, you know, your performance reviews as well. Uh, hopefully you have your performance reviews with your leadership. And, you know, when you have a conversation, oh, what are we doing for the last quarter or for the last half a year? You're like, oh, I've done this, this, and this. And here's my artifacts. Is my design review this? I implement this feature and why is it important and what's the scope of the issue was? So all of those things, um, you know, are the reasons why we need to expand this uh, into the new feature planning. And that, and that kind of now goes to, so we have the implementation. Uh, we actually, we start with planning. We have implementation. We have quality. In the mature teams, you can then also proceed into uh, deployment. Deployment could be, again, automatic. And again, this daily releases is the next step, <laughs> ideally. But you can track the deployment of your feature, something that you worked on, something that you planned, something that you're responsible for the quality with, something you, you're proud of that it's there. Uh, then you can deploy it. Again, it's part of the, maybe you have CD or somebody else deploys the code actually, but then you enable your feature post-deployment because you're now involved with the process because you know how to, you know, how to do it. You know, your feature flags. And again, it could be done in the collaboration with your 
a program manager or program owner, if you have other roles, again, depending on the size of organization, there'll be more and more people involved in different steps. But you can, uh, you can enable your feature. And in fact, you can do the post-enablement, of mo- post-enablement monitoring of your feature. Just if you see some runtime errors, right, it'll be easier for you to track what exactly happening. And you can also have the feature flag to turn it off immediately, by the way. That's another benefit of feature flag. Uh, and then uh, have the logs to try to fix it if something was you know, missed during your quality process. So this is the, this is the new feature planning, basically, step that we're, I guess, slowly turning into <laughs> the last to step. the last one, exactly. Daily, yeah. daily releases. Daily releases, yeah. And this step is, again, this step... Um, this, if you get to data releases, it almost uh, shows that you have all the previous eight steps working for you already. All right. So this is a, almost a culmination. Um, having monthly or the quarterly releases is very painful. Um, so why do you need more frequent releases daily or even every PR release? The, that's quite extreme. Why at least daily? Um, well, at least weekly first, <laughs> and then and then moving to daily. It's such a freeing, uh, freeing thing. Uh, it would bring you again a lot of satisfaction as a developer, and, and it, it increases your uh, developer experience overall uh, significantly. Uh, you're no longer um, uh, pushing your your things all together with some urgent features because uh, your code naturally lands every day, so. That enables you to do that. And also like bug fixes, for example. Um, you no longer need to have like, those hot fixes and things like that. Like first of all, ideally you will be able to turn turn something off if it was not working. But then the the, the reason there'd be no need for the hot fix because well the changes you submit lend net, lend in production naturally within you know a day or two. Uh, also if should your release be broken again, if you even you're using feature flags, but sometimes happens that you deploy a release and the release is broken. Uh, the typical process, if you have a long release cadence, is oh my god, we need to fix it urgently. We need to try to uh, deploy that hot fix now. With the daily releases, you're like oh okay, I'll just roll back the release from 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 a day before because it was working fine. And then I'll have time and figure out what exactly went wrong and then try to fix it. Ideally, a lot of things would be behind feature flags. So you don't even need to roll back. You could just turn off the feature flag. However, sometimes things, you know, go above that and you do have a broken release. So again, rolling back is very much safer. If, If you say, hey, well, I could roll back to a monthly release back. You could, but chances... Of, of things going uh, being broken, especially if that release is coupled with backend releases, are a lot bigger. And most companies are opting to go for the like, fast-forward hotfix. That means you might be spending your evening or weekend trying to urgently try to fix this uh, instead of you know just going home and slowly 
properly fixing it the next day and, and having it in the next release. So daily releases are super powerful. They're very much enabling um, of your teams, of your developer experience. Uh, and it's such a great feeling when you have those because you can continuously deploy. Again, it's part of the continuous deployment, right? So we have continuous integration and continuous deployment, CI, CD, continuous integration. We also touched, right, that the uh, monorepo feature flags that you continuously integrate. And now with the, uh, again, with the feature flags and frequent re- releases, you continuously deploy your code to production. So those are, those are the nine steps that, you know, I feel are important for front-end enterprise, front-end application to be successful. Uh, and this also delivers a good developer experience. So the teams might be able to retain their talent uh, also in a better way because people will be enjoying the process along, along with that. I think enjoying your work is also very important. And having pride and ownership with the, with the developer ownership Again, also allows you to deliver the things that you're happy with and you want to deliver them, you know, with frequent iterations. Yeah, I think enjoying your work is uh, one of the keys to, uh, one of the key to be uh, happy. Very simple. I I definitely agree. Okay, to sum up, uh, how far along are you on this journey at your company? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so we are pretty far along. Uh, we've done most of the steps. Uh, some steps are uh, still we mark them as in progress. Um, for example, for the quality, uh, we have we nailed down unit tests and and we are polishing our Cypress uh, tests now. Um, and a lot of other things were there. Like we have for new future plannings, we have like weekly design review meetings where somebody can uh, put their doc on the agenda and we'll look, take a look with as a whole team. Um, again, the attendance is not like required, but a lot of people opt to come in and, and, and get the knowledge or share their feedback. Uh, so we're along on a lot of those things. One thing we're, we're not quite there is we're not quite at the daily releases but uh, that's very much uh, the next last step uh, in, in this. Um, for, for, for me, I kind of outlined this vision, uh, we'll called it front-end success vision, um, over a year and a half ago. And I definitely thought that we would be already at the daily releases. <laughs> I was a little bit more optimistic because, again, our team also grew from um, from around 70 front-end engineers to almost 160 front-end engineers. So our team grew a lot. Uh, again, with more people, you do need to make sure that everybody's on board with uh, all the steps that we have. Um, but I'm happy with how the team grew. I'm very happy with the, with the folks uh, in our team. Very proud of my teams. Um, and yeah, daily releases is, is where we getting closer to that. And that's basically the next uh, step for me in my journey on this front end success. Amazing. Alex, thank you. Thank you so much. 
for this uh, great uh, conversation. And I'm looking forward to see you in Poland, to see you on the stage. Uh, this topic yes. is, is really, really cool, really interesting. I love it. I, I love it, Jipul. And it's uh, one of those conferences that I'm very excited to be at. Uh, and uh, luckily, I've been able to participate in person in Warsaw. Was it 2019? Uh, 2020 and 2021 for me were all online. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to be coming to to Poland uh, again in person this year. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me again. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Finally, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a like and a comment to help us continue to grow.